13 through 34, and uh, the title of the message today is Learning to Trust God with Your Wealth. Inheritance disputes, I've been told, and though I've never been through one, can be the most emotionally charged and vicious disputes um, possible. A friend related to me how uh, his father, uh, despite his best uh, encouraging him to do so, died without a will and made him the sole beneficiary. And uh, as he was trying to uh, execute his father's estate uh, in a responsible way and assuring his sister that he would do the very best for, for her that he could, uh, she repeatedly attacked him and questioned his motives, thinking that he was going to withhold something from her. And, uh, and he was telling her it's not quite so simple as there's this much and then we just whack it down the middle. There's things to settle. But she attacked him for that. And here we have in verses 13 and 14 exactly that, an estate dispute, where this man in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Rabbis were often consulted to make these kind of ethical decisions. And so it is not that Jesus Christ uh, does not have the right to do so, but that he's interested in something else. He firmly refuses to make this call because he doesn't care so much about this judgment call that most rabbis are called to make. He is concerned about this man's motivations, and that's something that no other rabbi would be able to see. And so, in verse 15, he turns from this rather sound rebuke from this, to this man in verse 14, and he says to them. Now, you may ask yourself, who is the them? there. Uh, the them is probably the crowd that you see in chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, what you see going into chapter 12 and uh, verse uh, chapter 11 says that he, he had just soundly rebuked uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. And uh, he, he had pronounced woes upon them. And so the, the atmosphere right now is electric. And so you see in chapter 12, verse 1, that under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, and then he begins to speak to them. And so, uh, verse 13 says, this is someone in the crowd. And so there's a huge crowd of people listening to Jesus. But we know that uh, Jesus, after chapter 9, verse 59, has turned his face toward Jerusalem. And what marks pretty much the rest of Luke is Jesus preparing his disciples, especially for the time when he would depart. And, uh, and during this time, he had these skirmishes with the, with the Pharisees and the scribes. And uh, so he's talking to his disciples uh, mainly, but this crowd overall is listening. Now, in this man's appeal to him, Jesus perceives an attitude that he sees as very dangerous. And we see this in verse 15. He said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed or covetousness. And so Jesus rebuked to the Pharisees, you know, earlier drawn this crowd, and he knows that these men are also lovers of money. He has drawn attention to that fact before. And so what is going to follow in, in the passage that we read just now is two discussions that Jesus gives. The first is on the dangers of money to the disciple. And the second is how we should avoid anxiety 
And, uh, you know, money and anxiety. If we had to summarize what kind of philosophy is in the world today that is primarily concerned with money and worry about money, that would be, it's an ism, materialism. Materialism cannot be defined any better than Jesus does in verse 15. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Materialism believes that a man's life consists of how much he owns. As another translation puts it, that real life is measured by how much we have. This is not just money that is the problem, but the root of the problem. This desire to get more and more materials and experiences. And so in this first discussion, Jesus points out that money can be an obstacle to discipleship. Now Jesus is going to go on in verses 16 through 21 to personify covetousness. He's going to say, okay, here's what covetousness looks like. And he turns him into a man and tells this wonderful story as only Jesus can do. He personifies covetousness in this man that we know as the rich fool. You know, there's no indication that uh, this man is crooked. Uh, it is not his fault that he is rich or that we see in verse 16 that his land was very productive. Uh, he makes a very valid observation, doesn't he, that he doesn't have enough room to store his crops. This is simply a good businessman. Maybe this guy would today write a book called The Productive Farmer, you know, or, or 48 Days to Security. You know, this would be a guy that we would look to as a man who is successful and people would listen to him. What is it that makes this man foolish if it is not simply the fact that he has riches? Plain and simple, it is his attitude that makes him foolish. What is his attitude? I think it can be summarized in uh, three statements. Verses 19 and 20, we see this first attitude. Uh, well, actually, let's back up just a tad. Let's look at verse 17. He began reasoning to himself, saying, and I'm going to emphasize a word here, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be married. What, what uh, word did you hear a lot of there? I, I, I. Jesus was letting you know that this guy's problem, first of all, is that he is self-absorbed. In other words, his attitude is, I am the sole owner of my possessions and my life. It is his self-absorption and not his wealth that is his problem. I am the sole owner of my life and possessions. Verse 19, my preparations, this man says, will make me safe and secure. He says to my soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. What does he trust in for his security? His abundance. And he views retirement not as a time to serve, but as a time to consume. And so my preparations, not God, what I have done will make me safe and secure. Verses 20 and 21 reveal something else 
about this man's attitude. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself. It is not rich toward God. This man's attitude toward his stuff is, what does God have to do with it? What does God have to do with this? God uses the term fool in its Old Testament sense. In other words, a man who lives without reference to God. Jesus calls to mind the observation of the preacher in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 18 and 19, where the preacher in Ecclesiastes points out the vanity of hoarding your wealth and not enjoying any of it or using any of it because chances are you're going to leave it to somebody more foolish than you. He says that is vanity, the irony that all of your savings can be frittered away by by one foolish son. Verse 20 uses an interesting word. When God says this very night your soul is required of you, the word is required back. It has kind of an economic feel to it. It reminds us that everything we have was granted to us by God and that one day he will require an account of it. In other words, we are not owners, but we are stewards. And so everything that we have, including our life, is on loan from God. Verse 21 summarizes this parable and points out this man's main problem. It's not money that is the problem per se. It is storing up treasure for yourself and not being rich toward God. What is this storing up treasure for yourself? Really, it is simply living like this man did, as a practical atheist, as if there was no God, no reference to him. Let me ask you a question. Do you and I, as believers in God, people who profess to follow Jesus Christ, do you live like a practical atheist when material things are concerned? Let me ask you some questions. When you dream, do you only do so in financial terms? When you go for financial advice, do you only go to your financial guy? Or do you go to spiritual counselors as well? Who do you admire? Is it because of their toys? How much their life possesses? Have you bought into this materialistic mentality that I respect this man because he has a lot of stuff. He knows how to do life. Here's a big one. What do you do with your disposable income? You got 300 bucks. What are you going to do with it? What you do with the money that is not accounted for is going to tell you what your priorities are. How much non-necessary, note that word, non-necessary debt do you have? I'm not talking about mortgage and college and, and cars, but on things that you really don't need. You can look at your debt, and it's a pretty good indicator of whether or not you are covetous. What is your attitude toward retirement? Is it like this man, a time to sit back, relax, enjoy the things that I have stored up? Or is it a time of service to God? These questions are going to reveal whether you live like a practical atheist. In other words, you're storing up treasure for yourself. Now, what is the alternative to storing up treasure for yourself? It says here in verse 21, it is being rich toward God. I love it when scripture 
uh, speaks to itself so beautifully and transparently that, that you don't even have to comment on it. Rich toward God. If you could flip on over to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. 1 Timothy chapter 6. You could not summarize what it means to be rich toward God better than this. So transparent, so beautiful. Chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, okay, exactly as the, the fool did, but on God. So being rich toward God is fixing your hope, not on riches, but on God. Not how much I've stored up, but on the God who disposes of all things. Who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. It's interesting. Note that there's an element where it is not wrong to use and to enjoy material means. Here's the other component to being rich to God. Not just trusting him, instruct them to do good. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. So that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So what is it to be rich toward God? To hope not in riches, but to hope in God. To enjoy what he has given to you, to recognize that it came from his hand, and to use it to do good and to share. That is being rich toward God. Verse 21 also acts as a bridge to the next discussion. We said that Jesus discusses two things. First of all, the danger of money as an obstacle to the disciple, but also how disciples are called to avoid anxiety in the following verses. And uh, it's a natural bridge in verse 21 because a man who stores up treasure is naturally going to be peaceful or anxious. When you have a lot of things, a lot of plates spinning, it tends to drag you toward anxiety if you're trusting in that for your security. A man rich toward God is not anxious because he has entrusted all these things to God. And so it kind of bridges this discussion from money into this discussion on worry and anxiety. The disciple, notice that now he addresses his disciples. So first of all, he addressed kind of the crowd with his disciples in it, but now in verse 22, he says to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Jesus is going to give some powerful arguments for his disciples to avoid being worried or anxious. And I tell you, these hit me right in the gut when I read them, because I am a worrier. I, I mull over things. I think about things. I, I plan things. That's, that's the way I'm wired. Not allowed. Verse 23. Why should we avoid anxiety? Verse 23. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. First reason Jesus gives is because your life is more than material concerns. Since God has a purpose for my life, God has a purpose for your life, it naturally follows 
that if you are pursuing that purpose, you're seeking the kingdom, it says later on, God's going to provide you everything you need for that. It says that uh, later on, you, he knows that you have need of these things. And uh, so if God has a purpose for your life, it's going to follow. He'll provide for it. What he orders, he pays for. Every one of us are called, uh, Second Peter says in chapter 1, make your calling and election sure. Every one of us who knows Christ has a call on our life. And not only are we called to salvation, but God who who knows the fall of a sparrow, who clothes the lilies, uh, who who knows all of these things, if he has a will for those little insignificant parts of his creation, does it not fall that he has a will for your life? Whatever he has called you to, your calling, your vocation, he is going to provide for it. He knows you need these things. Life is more than these things. And so your life is more than material concerns, so don't be worried about it. Let's look at verse 24. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom or barn, and yet God feeds them. How much valuable are you than the birds? And again, in verse 27 and 28, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon, King Solomon, in all his glory, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? Jesus' second reason for avoiding worry is because if God takes care of lesser creatures of creation, then he'll certainly provide for you. Verse 24 focuses on food. He feeds the raven. Verse 27 and 8 focuses on clothing and covering. You know, in verse 24, the point is not that birds don't work. They do, don't they? They're very, very busy, but they don't worry. The point is not that you shouldn't be busy about your work, that you shouldn't be industrious in planning, but you're not supposed to be fretful while you do it. You think about birds, how ludicrous it is. You know, well, what if the nesting market goes south? You know, what if the first national tree goes bankrupt? What if, you know, inflation eats away my nest egg? You know, they, they just don't do that, right? It's ludicrous to think about. So he provides for them. He'll provide for you. You're somebody whom Christ died for, who he redeemed. Verse 25 and 26, yet another reason. He just piles them on here. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life's span? If you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Because worrying accomplishes nothing constructive. Now, some of you um, may be looking at a King James version, and uh, you'll see something that you can't even add a cubit, 18 inches, to your height. And, uh, and that's because, basically, there are instances in Scripture that these words are translated either um, cubit or year. So it can either be a, a measurement of space or a measurement of time. And uh, stature or lifespans translated both ways as well. So the context determines it. And, um, and so I think here the context is a little bit better is, by your fretting, can you extend your life at all? No. 
is kind of ironic that you can't extend your life by worrying, but you can shorten it, can't you? All those psychosomatic illnesses, ulcers. Uh, hey, it pays to live God's way. So how do you learn, go about learning to trust God in material things? He's saying, don't worry, don't worry. Well, what's the, the cure for worry? What's the opposite of worry? Trust. How do we go about learning to trust God? Well, I would say a first step is trust Christ. If there's somebody here today that has not come to that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, let me just appeal to you. Life is not going to go well for you. You were created by a loving God to worship him. Every breath that you take, every heartbeat, every function of every organ is a gift from his hand to you. Every good thing that you and I enjoy on this earth, a good steak, the sunshine, the breeze on your face, comes from a loving God to you. And this great God wants us to know him and worship him and live with him forever. But we couldn't have failed him more than we did. Instead of giving him his rightful place as the king, we have exalted ourselves above him and actually tried to do life on our own. We could not have offended this great God more than we have. And so, if it was up to me, I would face his wrath forever damnation in a place of separation. I said to God, no, you cannot be a part of my life. And he says, okay, you can live apart from me forever in the place that I reserved, not for you, but for the angels and for Satan. It is a place of unimaginable torments and darkness and separation from the God who loved you and sent his son to die for you. And if it was up to me, that would be my fate. But I could not contribute a single iota to my salvation. Nothing, not a single work, nothing I could do. I have been condemned both by my nature and by my actions. But what I could not do, God did. And in doing it all, he did it completely, sending Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to take my place, to die, to act as a sacrifice and a covering for my sins. And that if I put my trust in Jesus Christ, he will completely save me. He will pronounce me righteous with the very perfectness of Jesus Christ so that when he looks at me he no longer sees my sin and my rebellion but he sees Jesus Christ and his righteousness and the work that he did on my behalf and so when your time comes and you will know it God will work in your heart and he will call you and you will say I am a sinner I am hopeless, I am living in rebellion, I am doing life my own way as this fool was doing. And you will all of a sudden become terrified at the prospect of not living for the purpose for which you were called, to serve God with your whole being. And when your time comes and you put your faith in Christ, he will save you completely and utterly. He will pronounce you at that moment righteous in his sight. And from there on, he will pour the Holy Spirit into your life that will assure you of God's love. He will empower you for good works. He will assure you of God's presence. 
And I tell you, living this way, like Jesus is saying, without worry, without anxiety, is impossible without the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so, my friend, if, if that is you, if you have never come to that place of saving knowledge, that can be a transformation that happens in you today. A simple reaching out of your heart to say, I am helpless and I need you, Jesus. And so, if that is you today, please, please, take that step. So, how do you trust God in material things? First of all, you better trust Christ. Second of all, reject materialism for what it is. You know, that's not just something we struggle for. Look with, you know, just say, yeah, I struggle a little bit with, uh, you know, wanting stuff. No, look at verse 28. If you worry, Jesus pronounces that you are men and women of little faith. Know what materialism is? Unbelief. It's an alternate way of doing life. When Evan Collier wrings his hands and thinks about finances, that is not just a little thing I'm struggling with. That is an alternate God. Unbelief. So reject it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to worry because I have a God. Recall God's faithfulness. Christian, has he provided for you in the past? Over and over and over. Just take some time to think about that. And then, instead of worrying, what can you do? Ask him to meet your needs. Because he's going to do it. It says he knows you need these things. So in verse 25 and 26, the third reason for avoiding anxiety is because it doesn't accomplish a single thing constructive. Plan, yes. Worry, no. And then the final reason in the final verses, verses 30 through 34, because worry is natural for pagans. In other words, people like the fool who don't take any account of God, but it's unacceptable for children of God and heirs of a kingdom. Look at verse 30. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your father knows that you need these things. Like the rich fool, everybody in the world, everybody that you know, everybody that you run shoulders with are eagerly, seeking, busying themselves with storing up. Isn't that what it's all about? Storing up, getting more, and then you die. But for somebody who is an heir with Jesus Christ and a member of the kingdom, that is not acceptable. Look at verse 31. So what's the alternative to busying yourself with seeking stuff? Seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. You know, seeking the kingdom of God, that's a phrase that we throw around a lot, right? It's a little bit abstract. Maybe we can fill it out a little bit. How do you actually go about seeking the kingdom of God? Well, for one thing, it does not mean uh, striving to enter heaven through good works. Look at verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So the kingdom is something that is granted to you. Citizenship in God's kingdom, where you will live with him forever, rejoicing around the throne in paradise, is something that the Father gladly gives to those who follow Jesus Christ. And so, what does it mean to seek the kingdom? Well, I found it uh, helpful to just look at it as the opposite of verse 30. 
So you've got the nations, in other words, the people at large, people who don't know God, eagerly seeking stuff. What is seeking the kingdom? It's just simply putting the same kind of effort that those people do, gathering material things, into spiritual pursuits. We busy ourselves with spiritual pursuits. Uh, some examples of spiritual suit pursuits would be spending time in prayer, planning to be exposed to scripture, reading it, listening to sermons, listening to edifying music. Uh, here are some things that are dear to the heart of Jesus Christ. Giving of your wealth to charity and the spread of the gospel. That is seeking the kingdom. Loving God and your neighbor in practical ways. Uh, I love what Pete and the uh, youth group were, were looking at doing. That's very, very practical, isn't it? Go down and help some people in a poverty-stricken area fix their houses. That's seeking the kingdom. Uh, making disciples by baptizing them and teaching them. Telling people about Christ and then teaching them how to follow Jesus Christ. Those are ways that you and I can eagerly pursue the kingdom rather than eagerly pursuing material things. So he says, basically, put time into the kingdom. Eagerly seek. Uh, be ambitious about spiritual pursuits. But then Jesus goes from kind of the general seeking the kingdom. That's pretty general. Seek the kingdom. Now in verses 33 and 34, he gets uncomfortably specific. Throughout Luke, Jesus speaks often of money. And that may be because there is no better indication of your priorities than what you do with your money. Verses 33 and 34. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourself money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, a kingdom seeker is called not to hoard the money, but to give it away. Uh, this does not mean that we have to take a vow of poverty. It doesn't mean that uh, we have to sell everything that we own. You know, there's plenty of uh, examples in Scripture of believers with means who are rich toward God. You have a great example coming up in Zacchaeus, a man who was a hoarder, who all of a sudden when he came around and he followed Jesus, salvation came to his house, he gave half of it away, which still left him a man of substantial means, and we can only assume he used it for good purposes. Uh, you have men like Gaius in Third John, right, where uh, he was a, a great hospitable person. Uh, you have Lydia, the seller of purple, who had great means. Uh, you had people uh, in every Past, in every book of scripture that it said, greet the church that was in your house. They had houses large enough to be gathering places. And so it is not a vow of poverty, and it is not selling everything that you have. But here's what it is. It just means living a simple life and give away the excess. Uh, we could add to that, don't forget to enjoy some of it. Uh, the entire book of Ecclesiastes says... You know, don't, don't forget to enjoy some of what you have. Don't hoard. Give away. Be rich toward God. Enjoy some of it as a gift from God. 
Take a lesson from the fool. Don't hoard. Realize that money can be a danger to your soul. But it can also be a great joy if you are rich toward God. And we can think of giving it away as heavenly currency exchange. When he refers to that money belt that doesn't wear out, he's saying, now you've got eternal treasure. Uh, When he speaks of an unfailing treasure in heaven, it's just like a divine currency exchange. Every good deed that we do with our means is storing up for treasure in heaven. And uh, Jesus really puts his finger on a sensitive subject when he begins touching our money. You know, some logical applications would include, of course, giving to your local church, uh, giving to the poor, you know, people around you, giving to any believer that has needs, uh, spending money in evangelism, uh, hospitality towards strangers, uh, missions trips, uh, all of these things. Uh, taking care of ailing loved ones, uh, taking care of an aging parent. All of these things are ways that we can be rich toward God and not hoard it. So in conclusion, if greed or covetousness and anxiety, in other words, materialism, were dangers to Jesus' disciples in that day, do you suppose that they are a danger for modern-day disciples? In an age of unprecedented wealth and in-your-face materialism, we, believers, are in serious danger. If you don't know Christ, it will hold you there. If you do know Christ, it will seduce you, and it will make you a poor disciple. And only by being wary of greed, avoiding anxiety, and then positively investing in something positive, investing in the kingdom. You know, it's that replacement principle. If you just say, okay, I'm not going to be greedy and hoard, and, you know, I'm not going to worry. If you don't replace it with something positive, guess what you'll be doing pretty soon? And so begin to say, how can I, in my position, in my calling, with my means, if they're modest or whether they're great, it doesn't matter, how can I invest in the kingdom. Only by doing those things can you and I escape the dangers of materialism. And so I ask you today, will you in your heart commit to trusting God with your wealth? Sit down with your spouse or spend some time in prayer yourself and just say, are we doing this or am I living as a practical atheist? How can we put the same amount of energy that unregenerate men do storing up stuff into investing in the kingdom. And I tell you, I mean, that that youth group thing, that's a great thing. I mean, that's an immediate thing that we could do to really just get behind those folks. Just find something. Uh, You may want to go and, you know, hit Amazon, you know, or hit eBay, hit Craigslist and start selling some stuff and say, any proceeds I get from that, I'm going to give it to the first person who, who God lays on my heart. That may be a great exercise. It may mean just simply starting to give. It may mean every time you get discretionary money. Here I am looking at these 300 bucks. What am I going to do with this? Well, save some of it, spend some of it, give some of it away. I I don't know how it is in your mind, but begin to think that way. How can I begin storing up treasure in that heavenly currency exchange? 
I am not preaching at you. I am preaching to me. This is, this is something that uh, I have got to change in. And I just pray that our church would not be crippled by this alternate God of materialism and that God will begin to do something through us as we begin to live this way and that he will get glory to himself through our wealth and that we will trust him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the clarity of Scripture. Thank you that Jesus still speaks to us in such a clear and concise way, and it's as powerful as it was then. Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts. Lord, again, we acknowledge that we cannot do this on our own. Lord, help us to trust you. Lord, if there's somebody here that doesn't know you, they are still mired in this. They're still living like the rich fool. I pray that they would turn from that and that they would trust Christ today. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us in the past, or your faithfulness for providing for this church. Lord, I pray that you would use us to be a blessing to each other, to the people around us. You would use us to expand missions, that we bring other people into your kingdom. Lord, I just ask that you would do that in our midst today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.